Welcome to DevCast. Dev Technology Group has been delivering information technology solutions that enable government missions for 20 years now. And this podcast is where we share the inspiration behind our work, as well as some of the technical details of implementing IT systems for the federal government. I'm your host, Will Nichols, and today, CTO Yemi Oshinaye and Director of Technology Adam D'Angelo join me once again. And we're going to talk about new technologies, maybe a little bit of artificial intelligence, security, and a lot of other IT topics. Adam and Yemi, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks, Will. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right. Well, let's start off. We had a fun discussion. Uh, discussion preceding this recording about um, trying to balance new tech, introducing new technology, and you know that can get complex and difficult pretty fast. But there are also risks with staying with legacy systems, and in a federal government, you've got to be able to balance those. And what are some of the factors you you guys use when you're evaluating a system and helping an organization? try to move to, to more current technologies? Yeah, I can start with that. I, th- I think you want to look at where that organization is. Uh, you want to look at what they're doing. Uh, I, I think there's a knee-jerk reaction. They want to just jump in and say, oh, you need to do everything new. Uh, taking a time to assess what the mission and the objective of a certain group or, or a set of operators is very important, and then using that objective, using that analysis to help you drive to what those technologies are. Uh, you know, Adam talked a lot about user experience. That's part of it. Uh, there's a user experience that is best suited for a certain technology. And as you analyze and understand that through discovery sessions, through embedding yourself, that's what will help you drive towards how to make that next step. Yeah, I think there's a practical side to that as well. I mean, we're not working in Silicon Valley where the, this is startup money, right? I mean, th- th- there are real budget constraints yep. here. Um, I think money, honestly, drives most of the decision-making, right? Different departments, different agencies have different budgetary constraints. And I think understanding those and working within those constraints is critical, not just for being able to deliver IT solutions within a current budget year, but looking down the line, right? I mean, if you see a system is costly over time, well, why why not solve that now, um, taking little bites out of that apple before that becomes just a nasty rotten apple down the road, and you're you're you know really thrown under the bus trying to figure out how to fix that. Yeah, I agree. And you're you're, I take it you're not really just looking at the specific technologies involved. You're looking at the processes that got them there that have have that have them holding on to legacy systems sometimes maybe a little too long. Um, so it's not just about the technology per se, it's about the management systems and and the the uh, this, the ecosystem of that whole that whole IT and management system and everything in that organization. Yeah, I mean I you know people build processes around technology a lot as well. Uh, so, you know, if I have an access database and that happens to be my quote unquote enterprise database, there are activities, processes, there's a culture built around that. So what our job is to go in and see what those processes and those cultures support. Why do you do that? Uh, what are you delivering? And, and you know, kind of like Adam said, there's a cost around it, right? That's access is pretty reasonable of a cost for you to have, right? So then we go back in and see based on those objectives, how do we provide an experience so you can 
fulfill those same objectives in something more enterprise level and take into consideration what are the costs of offsets? Maybe you're using 10 people to do it now and I'll shrink it down to two people and then slightly increase your technology budget, but then add some security. Uh, so those are some of the things we have to take into account. Yeah, I think uh, risk aversion is another one. You know, a lot of folks in the federal space are are have been there for a long time, frankly, and they've been around enough failed IT projects over their decades of public service to remember what those failures were like and that they didn't go well and that somebody probably didn't get promoted because of that. And there is this uh, environment of being risk adverse in the federal government that sometimes prevents them from deciding to move forward with a big initiative. Um, and then that problem becomes, they put it off, they put it off, they put it off until it becomes, we have to do this right now. It's a huge emergency. And as opposed to doing it the right way, you know, sometimes shortcuts need to be taken in order to achieve the goal that, um, you know, is long overdue. Yeah. So where do you see some of the trends going with regard to technology? I mean, in the private sector at uh, a company the size of, let's say, Dev Technology, you know, 100 or 200 or 400 people, a lot of private enterprise is outsourcing IT to managed service providers. They're leaving a few servers on site that they might need for their intranet or this or that application, and they're putting a bunch of servers in a co-location or a data center to be managed by that um, service provider. In the federal government with your customers, what trends do you see along those lines? Are we still having a little internal IT departments that are kind of siloed? Are they outsourcing more to, to outside entities? Mm-hmm. More centralization, less centralization? Where, where are we going in terms of those things? So I, I think one of the big things to make a distinction, uh, so the federal government is, is very much like private industry in, in that there are different types of agencies, right? Just like there are different types. There are private entities that they can't outsource and they can't go to managed service. Same thing is in the federal government. There, there are all needs and objectives for each agency. Uh, so what you see is you see it in waves or, or in different patterns. I think from the federal government, something that is similar across is the ability to realize that there needs to be a change. So that's a lot slower because in that sense, there's a lot of policy and regulation. So moving the federal government is, is, is kind of like moving a huge you know, tanker, right? It, it doesn't move on a dime. You, you, you have to slowly move that organization. So the first step was saying, you know, we're bad at managing infrastructure uh, and, and understanding that infrastructure is layered into one, there's a service provider that provides me the building. There's a service provider that manages the racks. There's a service provider that manages the patching. And then, you know, at the end of the day, there's a service provider that helps me integrate it. That's, there are a lot of hands that change there and leads to slow delivery. Uh, it leads to a lot of mistakes. So what's the next thing to do? Uh, if it's going to a managed service, the other thing is how do I get to the managed service? Uh, procurement is also a layer of all this. Uh, a lot of times... Most times the government tries to buy things that are commodity based at lowest cost um, and as an item, whereas your managed service is based on consumption. So now you have a paradigm shift. So, so how do I purchase a managed service is it, it, kind of like the next phase. So you see that um, realization in different agencies, very different ways. And then 
you know, you, you get to the point where you say, oh, I know how I can buy it. Now I have to learn how to use it and train the people that I hire to use it. So I, I think you see some of that. Now, how much do you think that procurement process really holds back innovation and advancement and new projects that might need to be done in the federal government? Like everybody sort of agrees, hey, this needs to be replaced. Procurement can be a real obstacle. Yeah, and there's a lot of interesting things happening in the procurement space right now around agile procurements. Um, even the way that um, RFPs and statement of works are being delivered and companies are now bidding on them. There's a lot more um, show us, don't tell us. And, you know, I think from my side, you know, I think that's the right direction. I mean, I think, you know, we would love to be able to come in and show our potential customers exactly what our capabilities are, as opposed to just writing something in a piece of paper uh, in a proposal. Um, so, but that's just one part of the procurement process. I mean, I think there are still other contractual things that are still being worked out. Um, I think we spoke about, uh, I forgot his last name, but Jonathan, who's doing some work over, um, I think he was with uh, GSA before, um, helping to lead for, you know, the agile acquisitions and those sort of concepts. But there's a lot that needs to change there too. And all the agencies need to be educated on this and all the contract officers need to understand how they can leverage the FAR to the best of their ability to do exactly what Yummy was saying, um, to kind of move towards that different model. Now, let's talk about security a little bit. We Right now, there's a lot of news. You know, Google recently announced the time of this recording. They just announced they had a big uh, a breach, but it's been months ago, and they didn't announce it. Facebook has had the breach. They had the Cambridge Analytics thing. Uh, there's, there it seems like there could be a, a sort of a crisis in public trust uh, or maybe we're just inured to it now, but right now there there does seem to be this big problem with are we overestimating how secure th- these things can be or should be? I mean, we're putting a lot of faith in these i t systems, and how do you approach this this issue of sort of public trust and user trust in the system they're using now and how do, how do you help build systems you know what does it have it has to be in the very beginning you're talking about security and how do we make this secure and what are the expectations yes yeah, i think that's that's a that's a huge conversation one because you can take it from many angles you, you can take it from the angle of just pure software development where you say you know let's build with a security architecture so when i build a product my first thing to do is build out what my ingress and egress of whatever that package is if it's a software package who access it, how do they access it, and why would they access it, and build that into building the system. Um, Then there's a larger, maybe somewhat philosophical conversation about security. Uh, I think, you know, we were talking about Adam before, just saying, how secure is anything, really? Uh, So if we look at the aspect of anything, I mean, banks are robbed every day. There's probably one getting robbed right now. Cars are stolen every day. Uh, There's shoplifting that goes on. We've become numb to it. Even, you know, my, my dad had a store when I was a kid. When you when you start opening the store, the first thing you do is you you make a risk factor of that you're going to get robbed. So your question is, how much will you get robbed this month? So you know that you have a certain amount of revenue coming in. So I, I think it's the same concept. We start to put more valuable assets behind technology. So there are going to be more people that want those valuable assets because you're really converting it, right? Information is getting converted to being digital. 
So instead of going into a file cabinet and stealing a file, they're going to go through digital access. Uh, it's, it's more controllable. I mean, that's the benefit. But n now people are going to access it more. And then, you know, you kind of talked about the Snowden effect, the insider, you know, threats. I mean, that's, that's it too, right? Sure. And often it's an accident. How many times have I received a letter saying, um, hey, your you know, security information was compromised? And then you do a little bit of research into that and you found, you know, it might have just been um, somebody in one department, finance department, downloaded a report, emailed it out to a bunch of people. Some of them didn't actually have government email addresses. They could have been contractors supporting their work, you know, not you know, nothing truly criminal there, just an accident. But that's a security breach, right? Now it's left, uh, you know, the government boundaries. And, you know, that's a security violation. But then you also have the malicious, you know, depends on how you feel about Edward Snowden, but <laughs> we'll call him we'll call him malicious <laughs> today. And, uh, you know, purposefully taking classified information or sensitive information and distributing that to folks who do not have the right to see that information. Um, people are probably the weakest link to any computer system at the end of the day. And that's not to say that security concerns, like Emmy was saying, shouldn't be built into the engineering process. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's usually one of our first considerations when designing and developing any system, any feature. Um, but then you start dealing with some of the complexities of, well, why are you storing all your data in one spot? You know, should you leave all your money in one bank? You know, so th there are some really fascinating um, architectural paradigms that need to be considered when you're talking about data security, um, when you're talking about pulling reports from systems. You have users who can access, you know, select star from table in some of the our biggest databases, right? Essentially pull reports of everything and malicious and or not, that can just leak out. Do you often run into resistance with these product owners when you say, hey, this is not secure because uh, John can do a select star and get ev dump everything from this database? Is there is sometimes resistance because the owner might know that that's going to reduce the functionality, the ease of use for somebody that might need to legitimately access that data. Is this a, is this a real challenge and how do you how do you deal with that? I, I view this as two things. One is that user experience issue. We, you know, I think we, I mean I love coming back to user experience. It's very important to us as we consider designing systems and features for the federal government. But there's also a training issue that we kind of frequently gloss over, um, where we need to teach people how to do their job differently and have them accept that. Well, you don't actually need all that information to do your job. These are the data points you need. Um, but people get used to seeing things in maybe this, you know, this old green screen way of I can see all these pieces of data and there are no limitations on what I can and cannot do there. Well, is that necessary? And I, I think there's a training component to moving people forward, um, enabling them to see, hey, you can actually do your job more effectively and efficiently and with a greater level of security if we do it this way instead. So a lot of it is business process reengineering, you know. Truly today, they may actually need to do that select star from table to do their job, but should they, right? And I think that's the question. You know, we don't want to just modernize IT systems. We want to modernize the, the business processes those IT systems are supporting. That's usually what you're trying to do. Yeah, and I think it's, it's uh, you said it once. I know, uh, you know, Mark Schwartz said a lot when we were moving towards Agile is, is that, you know, if you can't explain the business value of something to the product owner, then you probably shouldn't be building it, right? So, and, and a lot of folks get uh, kind of um, 
turned off by that, but it's true. It's, it's security has business value. And if, and if it's protecting your asset, then we need to figure out how we implement security in the same iterative, small bite of the apple process that we do with anything else. And we also need to show how security protects assets. Uh, you know, you don't want to start, you know, gold plating systems, but if it's security that needs to be in, put in place, I have yet to see a product owner want to put their assets in jeopardy. And technology is a part of every person's job. I mean, it's hard to find in any business or organization somebody that just isn't sitting in front of their computer using applications, mobile devices, stuff all day long to do their job from where, you know, whether it's at home, they've got to use their Wi-Fi, their VPN, their identity management, uh, whatever token, whatever they're using for uh, multi-factor authentication. Um, is edu- education, is that a part, a big part of what dev technology has to stay involved with, with your customers? I mean, and how do you, how do you approach that in this sort of software and, and technology development that yeah, you guys do? There are layers of education, right? So, uh, you know, dev technology, really good at process. Uh, it's one of the things that's, that's kind of a hallmark of the company. Um, Learning process, understanding process, understanding what a process is, is very important. Also, as an integrator, understanding all those different technologies that you're, because you named multiple technologies right now, and where they fit in the process, how you use them, how they impact the next part of the process, what the dependencies are, something that you need to learn, as well as learning how the customer uses those different processes. Uh, I think it's 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 a key component uh, because when you re-engineer your process, which you really should do first before you even focus on technology, you're now finding out the leanest, best way to get to where you want to get to, which, you know, going back to your cost uh, discussion is you actually limit your costs when you limit the process. So you don't want a heavy process. You don't want a process with too many dependencies. And then you go by and say, okay, now how can I make this effective and implement it with, with software, Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, Will, you started off asking us, hey, you know, what technology is exciting? What are you guys interested in moving your customers to? You know, it's not always a technology answer that we're looking for. It's how do you find different ways to provide value and speed up the process and make life easier for the end users? Being a true advocate for them is, you know, I think what we try to focus on. Um, you know, and, and that could be something as simple as using an old technology like, hey, maybe we, we write a custom cron job to deliver some report to somebody's inbox as opposed to them having to go into a system and do a whole bunch of other things. There's value in that. And it's not new technology. It doesn't all new technology is not always the answer to make everything better. Um, but I think it's just how you frame the problem and part of that education process of, hey, the, the shiniest object is not necessarily going to be the way that we're going to deliver value to your customers. Um, but maybe through training um, and working with them to understand their problems at a lower level, we'll be able to provide better solutions. Getting out into the field and seeing how the end users interact with the system. Wow, I mean, talk about such a powerful way of developing software. Um, sitting, sitting behind a computer here inside the Beltway and you know, going through a list of requirements written by somebody else who's also sitting here inside the Beltway doesn't necessarily yield the best returns for, for the users out in the field. 
Yeah, I think that might be a new Dev University class. <laughs> Field instruction. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's a constant. Uh, it, it's something that has to be done iteratively. You know, you mentioned small bites of the apple all the time and iterating on these topics. I mean, I remember implementing a, you know, a Cisco VPN solution at a company I worked for. This was years ago. And we had to move away from just logging in through an open remote desktop session server, had to implement that VPN. I'm all for it. And the VPN sounded great. The salespeople, the Cisco rep and our, our service provider rep are like, oh, this is great. You're going to use this VPN. Look how easy it is to use. Well, three months later, when Microsoft updated Internet Explorer, that VPN broke and I had 30 people on the phone uh, you know, on a Friday going, hey, why why can't I log in? These dependencies and educating people that technology has a certain amount of overhead and learning, and um, in that case, the complications were, were significant. When, sometimes you give people an ed- expectation, hey, you're going to be able to work from home securely. We're going to keep our servers more secure. Sounds great, but it led to a steady flow of Little technology, just nagging problems that were ongoing that we had to devote resources. And then it was educating management. Hey, this SSL VPN system, it isn't great. There are issues here. I like using it. Works great for me. But 27% of my users have Wi-Fi that's not that great. And they can't move their router to to their office. You know, how do we want to deal with this? And end users had to know, hey, this isn't always going to be a walk in the park. Um, You know, educating about uh, expectation of new technologies and moving the issues you can have, that can sometimes be a a, uh, a big factor here. I think that's absolutely true, but there's also kind of a, a responsibility of the product owner and of the developers to develop a quality product from the get-go, right? I mean, I, you know, I like to talk about Apple versus Microsoft, right? iOS and, you know, the Mac OS is way easier to use than Windows was for many years. And I'm not saying Microsoft hasn't done a lot to catch up and eliminate the blue screen of death and all those good things, but there was a quality built into Apple software and Steve Jobs and the designers at Apple didn't really listen to feedback from the greater community. They went with what their vision was for, you know, locking down the system to their own proprietary hardware, doing it their way. But I'll tell you what, the interoperability amongst Apple to Apple products is seamless um, to this day. Um, But if you branch out into the Linux world or the Microsoft world, Intel, you know, you're you're bound to see that you're going to have compatibility issues, configuration problems. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, which side of the coin do you want to fall on there? Um, you could lock down things a lot more and spend a lot more time developing and designing that system, or you could kind of leave yourself open, um, spend a lot of money on developing, you know, everything. This thing will do everything to everybody for everybody, but you're going to leave yourself open to issues. And the more technologies you integrate the more issues you're going to have. It's the way it's always been and probably the way it always will be. That's spot on. I think the thing that I hated most about Apple was the thing that I loved the most. It's like I I can't integrate all my personal, you know, code into Apple code. I can't, you know, write code that 
uses instruction to its, you know, um, operating system because I can't and because they don't want you to. But like you said, you know, there's some common sense part of it, right? It, to have something that's built by one person that focuses on it, that integrates all their own products makes sense because they have a single, you know, throat to choke, right? And, and they'll take care of their product because they have pride in it. Whereas Cisco and Microsoft, they talk, but they're not talking all the time. They're not making products together. So, of course, there's going to be an operability. All right. Well, this has been a once again another great session of throwing around a lot of cool cool <laughs> topics in IT and what it takes to get these systems built. Yemi, Adam, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Will. All right, thanks. Well, that's another episode of DevCast. Thanks to Adam and Yemi, and thank you for listening. And by the way, Dev Technology is still growing and hiring for a variety of positions, including DevOps engineers, SharePoint, Java, database developers systems engineers, and more. To learn about life at Dev Technology and to view full job listings, check out devtechnology.com careers. We've been rated as a top workplace by the Washington Post for five years in a row based solely on employee surveys. Yeah, that's right. It's just a great place to work. Here's what Karen Talimid had to say about how she ended up at Dev Technology. Sitting in the interview with them and hearing about how they put uh, the clients and employees first, and it just seemed really genuine to me. And I believed them, and so that's why I accepted the job. And to this day, it still holds true. Oh, and be sure to follow Dev Technology on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to see the most recent job openings, as well as blog posts from our subject matter experts on things like SharePoint or DevOps. and. You can also see some of the fun stuff our employees are up to around the office.